Good morning, everybody. As Steve said earlier, my name is Stephanie Husk, and I'm the pastor of our Life Path program here at Salem Alliance Church. And for those of you that don't know, Life Path is our restoration and recovery ministry. And I'm very excited to be with you this morning, excited to be teaching this weekend, and I'm excited to be a part of this series, Spiritual Dominoes. We have been taking a look at five catalysts for spiritual growth. And it's not that we're trying to give an overly simplistic formula for becoming a great Christian, but we are saying that when we are intentional in these five areas, it tends to have a domino effect on our Christian walk. It increases our faith, increases our connection with God. So a couple of weeks ago, Steve started us out, and he talked about providential relationships. And we were reminded of how impactful relationships are upon our walk with God and the influence that we have on one another. And then last week, Brian took a look at personal ministry, and he reminded us that we are more influential than we think and that we've got the power of God behind us when we are in ministry. And this morning, we'll take a look at the third area, which is pivotal circumstances. So to help me get started, I'm going to ask that all the kids come on up to listen to a story, and there will be fruit snacks, because that's what we do in August at Salem Alliance Church. Y'all in the audience won't be left out. We're going to pass some fruit snacks out to you as well. So come on up, kids. All right, get y'all set up. Hi. Come on up. You guys, come on up here. A few more coming. All right. I think we've got plenty of fruit snacks for everybody. All right. Still coming down from the top. If you're a dentist here this morning, I'm sorry. I just... <laughs> this is like your nightmare, right? We're all going to brush our teeth when we get home, though? Yeah. No? Okay. Most of us will all up here. A few of us. All righty. So um, I'm going to be reading a classic story. A classic just means that it's been around for a long time. Some of you have maybe heard this story. Probably uh, your parents or grandparents have even heard this story. It's called Chicken Little. Do you like that one? Cool. And so the pages are going to be up on the screen as well. So let's get started. One day, Chicken Little was walking in the woods when kerplunk, an acorn fell on her head. Oh my goodness, said Chicken Little, the sky is falling. I must go tell the king. On her way to the king's palace, Chicken Little met Henny Penny. Henny Penny said that she was going into the woods to dig for worms. Oh no, don't go, said Chicken Little. I was there and the sky fell on my head. Come with me to tell the king. So Henny Penny joined Chicken Little and they went along and went along as fast as they could. Soon they met Cocky Locky, who said, I'm going to the woods to hunt for seeds. Oh, no, don't go, said Henny Penny. The sky is falling there. Come with us to tell the king. So Cocky Locky joined Henny Penny and Chicken Little, and they went along and went along as fast as they could. Soon they met Goosey Pussy, because every name must rhyme, who was planning to go to the woods to look for berries. Oh, no, don't go, said Cocky Locky. The sky is falling there. Come with us to tell the king. So Goosey Pussy joined Cocky Locky, Henny Penny, and Chicken Little, and they went along as fast as they could. Then who should appear on the path but sly old Foxy Woxy? Where are you going, my fine feathered friends, asked Foxy Woxy. He spoke in a polite manner so as not to frighten them. 
The sky is falling, cried Chicken Little. We must tell the king. Well, I know a shortcut to the palace, said Foxy Woxy sweetly. Come, follow me. But wicked Foxy Woxy did not lead Chicken Little and the others to the palace. He led them right up to the entrance of his foxhole. And once they were inside, Foxy Woxy was planning to gobble them up. Just as Chicken Little and the others were about to go into the fox's hole, they heard a strange sound and stopped. It was the king's hunting dogs, growling and howling. How Foxy Woxy ran across the meadows and through the forest with the hounds close behind. He ran until he was far, far away and never dared come back again. After that day, Chicken Little always carried an umbrella with her when she walked in the woods. The umbrella was a present from the king, and if, kerplunk, an acorn fell, Chicken Little didn't mind a bit. In fact, she didn't notice it at all. The end. All right, so I've got a couple of questions for you. Now, first of all, to make sure we're all on the same page, we know the sky wasn't really falling, right? Why did Chicken Little think that? Because he didn't know what else could fall. Yeah, he thought it must be the sky. So I've, I've got a question for you. If an acorn fell on your head, what would you do? Okay, got another one, all right. I would look to see what fell. Good idea. How about you? I would throw it back in the tree. Yeah, good, good. Who else? What, what would you do if an acorn fell on your head? Throw it away. Throw it away. Yeah, something else. Keep it. Keep it, yep. Acorn collection. Give it to a squirrel. Give it to a squirrel, nice. Very nice. Any, anybody else? Give it to a squirrel. Yes. We're going to make sure those squirrels are well fed. Throw it in the sky. Throw it back to the sky, nice. All right, one more over here. All right, good ideas. You guys, thanks for being up here. Thanks for being good listeners, and thanks for answering the questions. I'm going to send you back to your parents, back to families. All right. Hopefully everyone can find their mom and dad. If not, moms and dads, stand up. So poor Chicken Little, Chicken Little finds herself in a pretty pivotal circumstance, a situation in her life um, that she misinterprets. An acorn falls from the sky. She misinterprets that to mean that the sky is falling, and that shapes the rest of her story. And it seems to me that all of us have situations in our life, pivotal circumstances that shape our stories and shape our faith. And I'm talking about positive things, um, such as belonging to a great church, such as having a good job, making a new friend at school, discovering a talent that you didn't know you had. And I'm also talking about more negative situations, things like losing a job, the death of a loved one, maybe losing a friend. And both of these things have the potential to impact our faith for positive or for negative. And I'd like you to take a minute and think about your own life and think about those circumstances, that event, that situation that was pivotal for you. 
What was it in your own life that made your, great, your faith grow? Maybe, maybe something happened that even changed the direction of your life. Could be positive, could be negative, could be something that happened when you were a child. Maybe something that happened when you were an adult. I'm going to share a couple of pivotal circumstances from my own life, and the first one's very positive. I was born and raised in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor, and I knew I was loved. We didn't have the perfect family, nobody does, but it was a good, solid childhood, and I was raised in Christian community. I was always surrounded by people that were encouraging my faith, and I had mentors. I was able to go to Bible camp every summer. And that was a positive, positive impact, influence on my life and on my faith. Something else about me that's not quite as positive. About 19 years ago, my husband and I found ourselves in the marriage that was falling apart completely. And we came very close to getting divorced. We had three small children. I didn't know, I really didn't know exactly how we'd gotten there, and I didn't know what the solution was. It was a very, very dark time. I didn't get it. I was confused. Darkest season of my life. And as I think about both of those situations, it occurs to me that while they both shaped my faith, to be honest with you, they both had the potential to shape that either positively or negatively. And I think for any of us, when we are faced with life, the biggest thing that makes the difference as to whether or not our life impacts our faith in the positive direction or a negative direction is this. How do we interpret our circumstances? How do we tell our story? There's a way to tell our story and there's a way to interpret our life that can bring healing and restoration and peace. And there is a way to interpret our life that will bring despair and lack of peace. And it's my prayer and it's my hope that this morning that God might give us a fresh glimpse of himself and that through that we could learn to take some steps that might eventually transform us. And so we're going to take a look at one more story, and this is a very ancient story. It occurred over 3,000 years ago over in the Middle East. And although it's very old and although it takes place in a culture that's unfamiliar to probably most of us, I think if we listen carefully, we will hear God. This is the story of a woman named Hannah, and it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 1, which is page 435 in the Bibles in front of you. So let me share a little bit about Hannah while you're turning there. Hannah is married to a man who has two wives. The other wife has children, and Hannah does not. And what we need to understand about that is that that circumstance creates for Hannah a very painful situation. She is a second-class citizen. She does not carry a high social status. She is on the margins of society because for her in that day and time, her worth as a woman would have been largely dependent upon the fact that she could have children. And in addition to that, a lot of people would have been making assumptions about her walk with God because after all, if she was a worthy person, God would be blessing her with a child. And so Hannah is walking around in a place of shame and embarrassment. It wouldn't be uncommon for people to make comments behind her back. That's her situation. The only positive thing that we read in our text is that Elkanah, her husband, loved her. But even that relationship is being compromised by the situation that she finds herself in. She's emotionally depressed. She's crying. She's even stopped eating. Her physical health is being impacted. 
And Hannah has a decision to make. How to interpret this. How to make sense of this. Here's, here's one possible interpretation that Hannah might make. She could interpret her life this way. God has abandoned me. He doesn't care. He doesn't love me. If he did love me, he would change my situation. He would see that I'm in pain, and he would never allow me to go through this. He would give me a child and end all of this. God is indifferent at best. And I don't think any of us would blame Hannah for feeling that way or thinking those things. It would be pretty understandable, pretty natural. But if Hannah stays there, if that's where she stays stuck, it will impact her relationship in very negative ways. Her relationship with God, her relationship even with herself, because she'll begin to define herself as unworthy, unloved. And that will impact the relationships that she has with other people because it's hard to treat others well when we feel that way about ourselves. But it's one option for her. Here's another option for Hannah. Here's how she could tell her story. Life is good. It doesn't bother me at all when people talk behind my back. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. God is good. Life is good. I'm going to just keep pressing on, moving forward, and pretend this isn't happening. Now, that might sound more positive, but honestly, that's a little bit more like denial than it is faith. And it's a little bit more about not being able to sit with hard emotions and ask some really hard questions and be honest than it really is about trusting God. It makes the people around us feel a little bit better because it's easier to tolerate maybe. But interestingly, even though it sounds more positive and it kind of seems like maybe it's the right thing to do, the result is the same as the other option. Disillusionment, despair, frustration because it doesn't work. Now, there is a third option for the way that we look at our life, and I think Hannah illustrates it well. So I'm going to read for you verses 9 through 18, and as I do, I want you to listen for the process that Hannah is going through as she is striving to make sense of her life. Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord, and she made this vow. O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime, and as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her, and seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound, he thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I am very discouraged. And I was pouring out my heart to the Lord, so please don't think that I'm a wicked woman, for I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back, and she began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. One of the things we have to understand about the context of this story is that for God followers of that time, part of their worship experience 
would have been going to a special place called Shiloh. And that's where the tabernacle of God was. That's where the presence of God was. And so once a year, people would gather, they would make a pilgrimage to Shiloh, and the city would be full of excitement, and it would be full of joy, and there'd be, there'd be good food, and there'd be dancing, and there would be rich traditions and meaningful worship experiences. And this was the most painful time for Hannah, the most painful time of her entire year. You see, the other wife that lived in the same household would make fun of her, would mock her, would ridicule her. She would intentionally set out to provoke her. God hasn't given you children. And when they would come to Shiloh for these worship celebrations, that's when this other wife kind of upped the ante and would antagonize her even more severely. This is Hannah's life. And what we see in this passage, first of all, is that Hannah is praying out of the anguish of her heart, and she makes a vow to God. And at first, it kind of looks like Hannah might be cutting a deal here, trying to negotiate. And some of you kids might have some experience with this, with your parents, I'm thinking, where you've wanted something really badly, and so you start the bargaining process with your mom or your dad or your grandparents. Uh, Maybe you're someone that's always wanted an iPad, and you say, Mom, I have to have an iPad. I, I want an iPad. If you will just buy me an iPad, my life will be good. Life will be better. I'll do my homework on my iPad. I promise. If, if you will just give it to me, I will make you this vow. I will promise this. I'll do the dishes every day for a month. Make it a year. Make it a year. I'll do the dishes every day for a year. Yeah, I've heard that one too. It didn't quite pan out. Um, Or maybe you boys want to take drum lessons, so you go to your dad. I really want to take drum lessons, and if you will buy me a drum, I promise I will never play them loudly. (laughs) You'll never even know I have them in my bedroom, next to your bedroom. (laughs) I promise you're not going to hear them. Um, And we tend to look down on that kind of bargaining, but honestly, haven't we done that perhaps even with God at times where we have been praying for something and we have been asking him and we've been diligent and we say, God, if you will answer this prayer, I will, I will pray more. I'll attend church more often. I'll pray. I'll give more money. I'll find the least enjoyable Christian ministry I can find and I'll do it for you if you will just answer this prayer. Now, while we tend to look down on that, I don't think that's what's happening here for Hannah. And I want to point out a couple of important, significant things about her request that are a little bit different. First of all, Hannah is worshiping. She's worshiping. It's not pretty worship, if you know what I mean by that. It's, it's the kind of worship that comes from a person who's broken, and she's crying out in anguish. She's being honest. She's not sugarcoating her life. She's acknowledging who God is. You are the Lord of heaven's armies. You take command over the warriors of the universe. God, I know who you are. So she has continued to worship. Do you remember several weeks ago where we learned that when we complain about God, it's rebellion. But when we complain to God, it's worship. And Hannah illustrates that beautifully in this passage. And the second thing her request does is reveal her true desire, which isn't so much about having a child as it is about experiencing God. Yes, she wants a child, but she says, God, I'll give him right back. It's like she's saying, Lord, I need to know that you see me. Will you look? 
Will you see? Will you remember that I am worshiping and I'm trying to be obedient? I am trying to do the right thing. Will you show me in a concrete way that you care about me? I need to connect with you, God. I don't think Hannah's so much negotiating as she is seeking God. And all through scripture, we're told, seek God, search, look. He wants to be found. And I believe that's what's happening for Hannah. She is seeking God in a very raw, honest way. And so naturally, the next thing that happens is she's accused of being drunk. <laughs> and, and Hannah responds fairly graciously. I don't know that I would have. I think I would have been a little bit defensive and a little bit like, you've got to be kidding. Are you really going to go there? Eli, you're, you're going to accuse me of getting drunk? Look, getting drunk would have been a lot easier than what I just did. And I think she would have been right. It's a lot easier to numb ourselves with things like alcohol or TV or Facebook or video games, sports, busyness, lots of service activities. And I'm not saying those things in and of themselves are negative. What I am saying is that sometimes in our effort to just relax, it goes over the line to numbing and we start avoiding the things that are real. And we start avoiding other people even. In our numbing. And it's easier to do that. What Hannah did took courage. Hannah was honest with herself, first of all. She was honest with God. And now she turns to Eli, and instead of being defensive, instead of running away with her feelings hurt, instead of being sarcastic or whatever her response might be, anger, she turns to Eli and she confesses the truth. And she says, That's not what was happening. I have been pouring out my heart to God. I am in distress. I haven't been drinking too much. That would have been the easier thing to do. I'm, I'm pouring out my heart. And Eli responds to her with understanding. He responds with respect and care. And it's as though he's saying, Oh, I hear your heart. I understand. Be at peace, Hannah. Be at peace, and may the God of Israel grant your request. And this is Hannah's defining moment. This is the game changer for her. Because Eli is the high priest, and he represents God to her. Just like Jesus, our high priest, represents God to us. And when Eli turns to her and says, I see you, I hear you, it is God saying to Hannah, I see you. I remember, I have not forgotten you, I have not abandoned you. And it changes everything for Hannah. It even lifts the depression that she's been under. Is it because she knows she's going to get what she wants? I don't know that she knows for sure at that moment. But you know what she does know? She knows she's experienced God. She knows that God has seen her. And that changes everything. And Jesus, our high priest, who was 100% God, was also 100% human. And Jesus lived a life full of circumstances. Some of them were positive, many of them, most of them even, were not. And he had to learn to, to walk in faith, and he learned to trust, and he learned to listen to his Father. And in the middle of all that, he learned to identify with us. And when he responds to us and says, I hear your heart, I see the pain that you're in. It hasn't escaped my notice. I remember. I see that you're trying to worship. You're doing the right thing. You're taking the next steps. I care. I love you. Be at peace. 
be at peace. And when we experience that Jesus, that can be our defining moment. That's the game changer. We go on in our story, and we discover that Hannah indeed does have a son. She names him Samuel. And he must have been a delight for her. And she stays with Samuel and until he's old enough to go back to the tabernacle. And then she makes good on the vow that she made to God. And she brings him back to the tabernacle and she goes to Eli and says, here's the answer to my prayer. His name is Samuel. And Hannah continues a relationship with Samuel, but she gives up her right to raise him. And I think that is a big sacrifice. That's, that's a big sacrifice. That's a big deal. In fact, Hannah's whole life, that her circumstance, the pain of what she went through was a big deal. It probably required that she let go of a lot of things that were important to her, like dignity and pride and expectations and hope. But if we read in chapter 2, and we don't have time to go through it today, but I encourage you to read it this week. If you read in chapter 2, you will hear the prayer of Hannah as she delivers Samuel to Eli. And it's not the prayer of a broken woman who has a huge hole in her heart. It's a prayer of a woman who has emptied herself of the things that don't matter, and God has filled her. And her prayer is this amazing prophecy, and it's, it doesn't even have much to do with her. She just begins to declare how great God is, and how wise, and how he sees people that nobody else sees, and how he makes things right, and he won't put up with wickedness forever. It's like God had become so big to her. She had been filled with something so powerful, so powerful. For the last 20-some years, my husband and I have been working at rebuilding our marriage, and I will tell you that it hasn't happened overnight. I, I prayed that it would happen overnight. He prayed that it would happen overnight. It didn't. It didn't. It was a long journey. And we walked through some very difficult and painful things. And I'm happy to say that we now are enjoying a good marriage. It's a healthy marriage, and that is all praise to God. I give him the glory for that. I'm enjoying that. But that's not even the best part of my story. The best part of my story is that God let me stay in a situation long enough so that I was willing to let go of the stuff that I thought I had to have to be happy. And as God gently and patiently removed those things, it created space for the Almighty God. And I've experienced God in ways that I don't think I would have ever experienced otherwise. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. In light of this God who loves us, who cares about us, who is passionate for us, who loves us enough that he doesn't let us sit in um, always positive, happy places, but allows us to sit through some hard things. In light of that, God, I think there are some practical steps that we can take as our hearts learn to long for him. And the first one is that we would keep worshiping. Um, good times during bad times, but we keep the communication lines open. And worship for some is singing and being together, and worship for some is being in nature. I know people connect with God in powerful ways that way. For some, it's journaling, artwork, but we express who God is and express our relationship, the longing that we have in our heart for him. The second thing is to share faith stories. We need one another in this journey. The temptation is to isolate during times of hardship and difficulty and to 
kind of push others away. It's the opposite of what we need to do. Sharing faith stories with one another builds us up in ways that are so, so very powerful. I need your story. You need my story. We need to hear how we are learning to interpret our life and make sense of it. And I don't necessarily mean just the stories that end up in a nice, neat package. I'm talking about while we're on the journey and we're saying, I'm not even sure exactly how to make sense of this. And then the third thing is to keep practicing. Remember the domino video that played right before I came up? That was created by one of our worship staff, Chris, and his daughter, Marin. And Marin is nine years old. And that video, although it was only about a minute long, took 20 hours to create. And they did it over three days. So I asked if I could talk with Marin, and, and I, I did. I, I met with Marin up in her dad's office, and I said, Marin, okay, you're nine years old. This is a 20-hour project. How did, that, how did that go for you? And she said, oh, it was hard. She said, it took a long time, and there were times I just wanted to quit. There was, there was um, at one point, she kept accidentally knocking down the dominoes, and, and she got frustrated with herself. Then they'd set them up and try to knock them down, and it wouldn't work, and they'd have to set them all back up again. She said, I just wanted to quit. I had to take a break, finally. And I said, well, why, why did you come back? Your dad probably would have let you just kind of leave the project, and, you know, that's a lot of work. And she said, well, I wanted to help my dad, and I wanted to do it for the church. And then she said something that I thought was very wise. She said, I realize that no one gets it all right the first time. I thought, that's true, Marin. <laughs> that's true. None of us get this all right the first time. Do you know, we're in the process of practicing. We're in the process of being trained, and we're learning new things. And so even as we're learning how to interpret our circumstances in our life or build relationships or be honest about our pain, don't expect perfection. Don't expect to get it all right the first time or second or third we're in the process. We're, we're practicing these things. And God is patient with us. And we're not greater than God, so let's be patient with ourselves. And let's be patient with other people. Laura and the worship team are going to come out, and they are going to help us practice. We're going to worship with them for a few minutes and just respond to God. And whatever God has placed on your heart, this is a chance to respond back to him. And so if you're in a place of contentment and you're in a place of joy, things maybe are going very, very well. You don't need to feel guilty about that. You can celebrate that this morning. But let that be the connection to God. Let that be the way your heart connects to God. Maybe he will take you to a new level of, of gratitude as you thank him for the blessings. And if you're in a place that's more painful and you find yourself in a dark, dark season... Still bring a sacrifice of praise this morning and let that be what connects your heart to Almighty God.